Hello, Stitchers. Welcome to Stitch Please, the official podcast of Black Women's Stitch, the sewing group where Black Lives Matter. I'm your host, Lisa Woolfork. I'm a fourth-generation sewing enthusiast with more than 20 years of sewing experience. I am looking forward to today's conversation. So sit back, relax, and get ready to get your stitch together. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Stitch Please podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Woolford. And as I say every single week, this is a very special episode because it is a very special episode, y'all. I am talking with Madia Mohammed, who is an amazing, fantastic visionary of a designer. Her work is so vivid. It is so alive. Her use of color is so striking. But she has such a powerful and broad vision for her work that I absolutely had to speak with her. And I'm just so delighted, Madea, that you are here with us today. And I'm very, very grateful. Thank you, Madea, and welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Lisa. It's great to be here. I am so excited. Can we get started with how would you characterize your sewing story? Did you start as a little, little? How did you begin? I actually started by just being that child that was very innovative and resourceful. I grew up in a household where my mom would get us new clothing every now and again. But for the most part, a lot of things were passed down through older cousins and other siblings. So, you know, hand-me-downs, things like that. So a lot of times, if I didn't like the way something fit or the way it looked, I would try to alter it in any kind of way to make it my own. And then it also transferred over to me just wanting to do more like my dolls. I would be like, oh, I want them to have more clothing or I want them to have more options to wear when I take them to play outside. My mother was like, well, we're not going to be buying all types of accessories and clothes for Barbies all the time. So <laughs> I would take that same innovative idea and attach it to that. So I would take maybe a pair of stockings my mom had to have a run in it and turn it into like a dress or a head wrap or even a pair of socks. I would cut one end of the socks off and turn it into like a tube dress for the dolls. So it just spilled over into that. And then from there, I remember, I think I was about eight or nine years old. I saw my mother hemming a pair of my brother's pants by hand, just with needle and thread. And I just really sat there and I watched and something really like struck me about it. It just looked very like peaceful and meditative and it resonated. So I got me one or two dollars, went to the dollar store, brought my first sewing kit and I took to a pair of old jeans that didn't fit anymore. And I made my first messenger bag and that was like my first official project. <laughs> that is such a beautiful story, my dear. I mean, it is so beautiful because what it allows me to think about is that creativity is something that we can build upon at any stage in our lives. But there are folks who have learned to sew from you go to a store and you buy a pattern. And that is one path to learning. Yeah. But what I really appreciate about what I'm hearing in your story is that your learning was really organic. Can you say more about that? Sure. Yeah. I was going to say even with that, to speak to that continued to really be my process and my connection to sewing because continuing and wanting to do more. I was like, well, I don't know how to do this or where to go about doing it. I just knew that this was something that was going to stick with me and something that wanted to grow with me. So I would rip out pages from the magazines and tape them up on my wall of different outfits I maybe wanted to try to make and try to style up. So it started with trying to style the actual clothing that was in my closet first to look like what I was seeing. And when that didn't go over, I took to a pair of scissors. <laughs> wow. So I would start to cut things and 
try to tie things here and there and then maybe take my little needle and thread and make a couple little alterations. And every now and again, I would bring it to my mom and I would go, well, can I wear this outside? <laughs> as long as it was like appropriate. She would be like, OK, let me see, you know, turn around. Let me see how it looks on you. But that was like the earlier phases. And then I think as I continued to do it, I learned that a quick way for me to figure out how to get something to fit the correct way with my body is to find something and take it apart. That way I can get more familiar with how it's made. And then in a sense, I guess that was in a way creating my own pattern, which I didn't realize at the time. I just was trying to figure out a way to make something as close as possible to what I was seeing. So that's kind of what it transformed into. That is so beautiful. Because what I'm hearing in your story is that sewing was equipping you. It was equipping you to have the things that you wanted, but might not have been able to get. So your mother was right. like, no, fam, we're not buying 511 Barbie <laughs> right. dresses and shoes for you to lose one shoe of every pair. No, no, no. Your doll will be stylishly dressed because I believe that you are a creative person who can make her stylishly dressed. That's right. And you did that. You absolutely rose to that occasion. You were able to take discarded materials and textiles and turn them into something that gave you joy that was able to help to fulfill a vision that you had. And now what you're explaining is that with just a few little tweaks, just a few little stitches here and a few little snips there, you were able to take your wardrobe and to model it and to style it upon other things that you had imagined. So it's like you're stitching to make your own dreams come true. It's very impressive. Thank you. I am just still captivated from the fact that you learned how to do some sewing by deconstructing ready to wear, which is something that I believe to be challenging. I always find that very difficult. And you started doing this just when you were a kid? Yeah, I want to say between 10, 11, 12, that age range is when I started to cut things apart to like take the pieces out, lay them out on the floor so I could see how things were made. So you were a 10, 11, 12 year old. You were in elementary school. Yeah. And you were deconstructing your clothing. Yeah. Most people were trying to figure out how to learn the four times tables or the nine times tables. <laughs> you were like, oh, that's OK. I got that. I'm going to learn how to do a front fly on some jeans. Like that's what <laughs> I'm going to do instead. Y'all go ahead and study for the spelling bee and whatnot. I'm going to show up there with the baddest outfit you've ever seen. My personal style definitely always still going to school. My mom so told me to this day that I like started dressing myself very young. She's like, you're at a young age. She's like, you knew what you wanted to wear and how you wanted to present yourself. So I let you take the reins. And she said, and you look nice. <laughs> well, that's so beautiful because from what you said, it sounded like your mom did not want you out in the streets looking any old kind of way. She was like, you had to go and show her that your outfit was like, can I wear this outside? And so she had what some could consider a strict vision for how she wanted her children to appear in public. Mm -hmm. At the same time, she also let you play. Let's just see how it goes. And I find it very special that she's given you latitude to explore and to create and to invent yourself. That's pretty special. Yeah. I wanted to ask also, at what point did you tell yourself? I believe I read that you studied English. Yeah, at Hampton University. At Hampton University. That's right. I'm in Virginia as well. And so I was like, oh, she went to Hampton. Yeah. And I'm an English professor. Surprise. Wow. <laughs> hey, but listen, I know English is not for everybody. 
my own child was an English major and that shocked me. I was like, what? Really? So English is not for everyone. I've enjoyed it very much, but it's not for everyone. And it was not for you, but you found what was. And I think we are all grateful for that because you have some gorgeous pieces. Your work is so inspiring. Can you talk about when you discovered that, hey, you know, I'm not going to be an English teacher. I'm not going to do law school. I am going to do this instead. How did you make that decision? What did it take for you to get to that point? It took a lot. I mean, it's funny because I knew that I wanted to pursue fashion like full time and very seriously. By the time I was about 12 or 13 years old, I created this pitch to give to my mother to convince her to let me go to FIT or some major fashion school so that I could continue to pursue it. And she very gently let me know, okay, this is great. I love that you're exploring this creative side that you have here. And I don't want you to lose that passion for it, but I also want you to consider maybe a more lucrative career choice. I don't want you to look back and not have something to fall back on. She was aware of the risk and how fickle the fashion industry can be. Mm-hmm. And of course, as a concerned parent, you want your child to like be okay. <laughs> so yes, that was a fear of hers. And she was well within her means. You know, you're going to listen to your mother. You're 13 years old. I'm not able to make my own decisions and do whatever I want at that point. So she said, you know, you're very articulate. You speak well, you write well, you enjoy reading, you write your poetry. So maybe consider doing something with writing, something with like public speaking or you want to help people, maybe law. So I said, okay, I'll go to school for English and then I'll figure it out from there. So I enrolled in Hampton. I went to Hampton. I made it in English with the intent to consider doing law school afterwards. But while I was at Hampton, someone actually gifted me my first sewing machine. Oh. So up until this point, I hadn't had a sewing machine. <laughs> I had just been. Yes. And can we just talk about how you did all these amazing things, including deconstructing and reconstructing ready to wear with no sewing machine. Right. Like you were re that stuff together back by hand. By hand. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Unbelievable. Seriously. Yeah. And so I got my first sewing machine as a gift when I was at Hampton. I want to say my sophomore year, it was in my apartment. And so I would have friends come and they, oh, can you fix these pants for me? Can you do this here and there for me? Can you take this up for me or take this dress in? Or So I was doing little odd jobs for people. And then when we would have events to go to, I would make my own outfits. And then I started to wear my own outfits. And as I started to do that, it built the confidence in me because not pursuing fashion seriously Definitely took a blow to my self-esteem and confidence when it came to my craft. It didn't make me feel like, oh, I should be presenting this to the world because maybe this is something I just safeguard and keep to myself because it's a hobby. Oh. Mm -hmm. And so once I started to actually wear my outfits, people's reactions are what made me go, wow, maybe I should do this more. (laughs) Yeah, because I was thinking when you were saying you were building your confidence, I was like, also, sis, you were building your reputation because when people see you in those (laughs) outfits, they're like, I want that. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. I want what you have. You got to tell me a bit more about how you were gifted this sewing machine. I'm hoping that it was the case of a friend who knew you loved to sew and was like, I'm going to give her this sewing machine because she will really appreciate it and she can invest and do some sewing in her free time. Or the person was like, oh, I think I heard she knows how to sew. And if I get her this sewing machine, she's going to have more stuff for me for free. Like, which was it? No, no. It was somebody who knew that there was a passion of mine. They gave it to me. As, I think it was either a birthday gift or a Christmas gift. I can't remember. They gave it to me because they knew it was a passion. And they saw how invested I was. They were like, you need your tools. Yes. They got me the sewing machine as a gift. And I took off from there. But yeah, I, I wore the outfits. People started to request things. So they would have different events happening. So people would come over and say, oh, can you make this for me? And I would go, yeah, sure. I'll make that. I'll make something quick for them. Every now and again, I would charge people. But I wasn't really going like super crazy with the business side of things. I was Mm -hmm. really more so focused on my academia, trying to finish school. 
So that was for the most part. And then I just continued to do it. When I graduated from Hampton, I knew for a fact that I didn't want to teach English and I knew that I didn't want to pursue law. So I was like, okay, what can I do? Maybe public relations, mm. you know, it's communication. I'm still able to use my degree in some way and maybe fashion PR. Yes. So I was trying to find a way to still be connected to the industry. So I went and I did maybe two or three fashion internships in public relations. And I also at the same time was working at Nordstrom in the women's designer department. So that helped me get very acquainted with merchandising and floor plans and visual, the people that style the mannequins, that kind of thing, and actually styling the customers because Nordstrom does have personal shoppers. So that was another aspect of it. And that really helped me to continue building. I want to say my knowledge about the industry, because at the same time, I was thinking in my mind, I would beat myself, kick myself because I'm like, my peers who are into fashion are probably so far ahead of me right now in our industry because they've gone to school for this. They've been trained technically for this. They're in those environments where those resources are around for them to grasp. And I'm nowhere near any of that. I'm just here sewing when I can, doing retail and doing internships. <laughs> so anything I could soak up and learn, I would ask as many questions as I could and just try to put myself in all these different positions of the industry to learn. And went from there. And then from retail, I took on a project management position at Uniqlo so that I could learn about that aspect of it. I worked at like White House Black Market for a few months. I like bounced around a lot in the retail space, but with different positions. And then finally landing like a bigger gig at a PR company in New York. So I moved to New York. I took on that job. And then as long as I had clients who were very tapped into lifestyle and fashion, I was enjoying what I was doing. But as soon as I wasn't doing anything with fashion, I was miserable. <laughs> like absolutely miserable. And I was like, I cannot do this. So anyway, something very, very fortunate happened to me where I was able to walk away from the PR world, take some saved money and some acquired funds and launch my business in 2017. And that's when I was like, okay, I'm going to take this thing serious and see where it goes. <laughs> And what a five-year gap it has been. I mean, my goodness, like in the last five years, it's such a powerful story. And thank you. you were trying to do what your mother advised. You were trying to keep the backup plan, have something just in case, you know, have a safety net. And you had all that, but you were able to recognize that in terms of your own mood and happiness, which is the most important thing, right? Right. You were happiest when you were doing whatever you were doing near fashion. Yep. I also hear you saying that comparing yourself to like other folks, like my peers, my peers. Medea, seriously, part of me is like, what peers? <laughs> seriously, I am. I'm like, what peers? Which peers? Who are your peers? Because who was deconstructing their clothes, making patterns and restitching them together by hand? Right. Like, <laughs> there's not a large, robust peer group of people of 10 to 12 year olds who are doing that. Who are the 13 year olds that are making a pitch deck for their mama? So that they could convince her that you should go to school for fashion, right? Right. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about this peers thing. There might be some people who are your own age, but I don't know if right. they might be able to call them peers because peers do what you do. And I don't know if anybody's doing what you do. This is true. <laughs> And so you had this really powerful growth. And I wanted to learn a little bit more about you, about why it was important to think about sustainability and refashioning and using that form of textiles. Instead of new textiles or designing textiles or building new textiles, you are content to use that which already exists in order to reuse it. It seems like it's a building block for when you would take socks and turn them into sheath dresses and stuff like that. 
Is there a particular reason or a particular appeal that comes from repurposing textiles? That right there was the connection, Lisa, you made it. It's definitely building on where I started when I was younger. The younger me, this is where she was happiest and thriving. And this is where my practice started. So for me, it always made sense to return to some form of doing it this way, but just stepping it up a bit more, adding more to it, more finesse, more style to it. So that was more or less where I got that from. And to be honest with you, while I was running the business and getting things going in 2017, that was the beginning. And then the following year, 2018, I decided to launch a program where I could teach the youth local to where I was. I was in Brooklyn. I could teach the youth how to sew. So I wanted to offer them one hour classes free of charge. And I partnered with a few other Hampton alum so that they could sponsor the classes for the children. And then I could pair the children with the Hampton alum who were in their respective career fields. If I met a younger girl or a younger boy who maybe had some interest in fashion or the arts, but also knew for a fact that they wanted to pursue law, I'd partner them with someone I went to school with that ended up pursuing law. Have them exchange the information, have mommy or daddy exchange the information with them, and then we'd go from there. And so I would host these one hour sewing sessions in the library library for free. And that would be it. And actually, one of my students, she used the classes to get into fashion industries high school, which was really impressive. We worked on her application and she was actually admitted into the school. So that was exciting. And only maybe a few months into doing that, I got somebody from Harlem Children's Zone reached out to me to come and bring what I was doing to their high school to teach their high school students fashion and sewing. So then that was my first time being in like a school setting and teaching in that way. So it was so funny because I was like, ha, now I'm using the English degree. <laughs> and that's what I'm saying. I was like, first of all, it like, came back. <laughs> you're like, you have a business. You've decided to commit to fashion in 2017. In 2018, you take that same fashion commitment and you pair it with teaching and community building. It's incredible. And then you go from doing things your own way and doing them in the library and being so smart and connecting with alums and relying on your network to help sustain this next generation of sewists. Then you end up in a school, teaching at a school. Like, (laughs) again, who peers where? It's so funny, though, because it's like I did that for a bit. And then I traveled. I went to the island of Barbados and I stayed there for three months. I was working there with another artist. We kind of created our own residency, basically. Wonderful. We connected with other artists on the island and we worked with them. We did like an exhibition, all those things. So while I was there, I connected with another artist there. He was an elder on the island who's a loom artist. And this was my first introduction to loom work and textile creating. And I was like, well, this is amazing. This is the basis of what I do. Yes. And I was like, I think it's important for anyone who's in fashion, who is a sewist, to really tap into that side of the industry, to really have that appreciation for that step of the process. Because a lot of us just go into a fabric store or order from our fabric wholesaler. But to see it made is completely different. Really having that opportunity, I was just really grateful that and honored that he invited me to his studio. I came and I saw him working and he even gave me a bunch of scrap to take back to New York with me. And he's like, if you're working on any collections, feel free to add this into your work. And I was like, I'll do that and I'll credit you and, you know, all those things. And it was just amazing. So I took everything back with me. I really like how natural that whole process was. And he taught me about Sea Island cotton and like all these things. And I was just like, you know what, this is something I want to continue to incorporate into what I do. And the vibe and the energy from that is what made me do my collection called The Knot Collection. And that collection was all linen, lyocell, and wool. Wow. And so I didn't have a job anymore because COVID had started as soon as I got back to the States. So I couldn't return to the school because they had shut the school down. Right. <laughs> so I was like, okay, back to the entrepreneur bag. 
I shifted gears and I was like, okay, I'll start doing sewing workshops digitally and doing all these things. But in the meantime, I also still want to host. I want to be able to do collections still, or at least put some kind of content or workout. I was like sitting on all this scrap fabric from Barbados. And that's when I decided, okay, all my fabrics are going to be linen, wool, lyocell, and cotton. What I did was try to source the fabric in a cheap way. And that was so hard to do because natural materials are not cheap. That's right. They really are. So it was like, okay, I'm over here trying to make like a full set, like a pair of pants and a shirt. And you want me to spend how much on the yard? Yes. So it was just like, how can I combat this? And I was racking my brain trying to figure out how to not just be spending and spending for no reason. And it kind of hit me all at one time. And I said, you know what? I need to return back to how I was doing things before. Mm. I can go to these thrift stores. I can go to the Goodwill. I can go to Salvation Army and specifically pull only cotton shirts, only linen shirts, only wool this, wool that when I want to create and take those pieces that are discarded and put them together and breathe new life into it. I love this so much, Maria. I absolutely do. Because when you're talking about linen, cotton, wool, these are things that grow. These are things that come from plants. These are things that live in a way that's different than things that are completely manufactured. I know we're going to talk about fabric alchemy because I'm so excited about that. But I wanted to give you a shout out again, if I hadn't already, was to congratulate you, y'all, because we are also talking to the 2022 Best Designer Award for Refashion Week NYC 2022. And what you made was this amazing puffer set that was with recycled materials, the materials you're describing. And the thing that moved me so much about it was your quote, reach the world, but touch the neighborhood first. Can you talk about that, about the garment as well as about the slogan? So the reach the world, but touch the neighborhood first quote, and I know you saw, but the hood and neighborhood was underlined because I grew up in East Orange, New Jersey. East Orange borders Newark and like Irvington and all these other areas. And these areas are, I wouldn't say they're hoods, but I guess whoever does zoning and figures these things out might consider these areas that, right? But I also will say it wasn't necessarily the safest area to grow up in. Mm -hmm. But what I will say is that I always appreciate and respect the fact that my mother really, really, really made it a point to enroll my brother and I in any program she could find, like anything she could find out beneficial that was enriching, like any type of music we could do, art, like camps, anything that involved traveling or going away or trying new things. And so the fact that she had to do that, it's not lost on me because what it meant was that our communities aren't necessarily awarded the same resources and opportunities that other communities are. So that quote really speaks to that and how being resourceful is really just a lot of times a result of you having a lack of opportunities and you having a lack of not handouts, but sort of somebody kind of going, here's the way to do it. Here's what I'm going to give you. It's you having to go out and find and look for those things bring them to you versus it being brought to your front doorstep. Yes. So I always think about all the children who are growing up in those areas who maybe have all these grand ideas and these visions, but don't know how to get from A to Z because that was me. So I'm always telling people as much as I can, I'm like, focus on those children, focus on that youth because they need it more than anybody. I needed that. My brother needed it. All of us need it because these children are the future and they have these visions and they're creators and they're artists and they're change makers. They're setting the trends. They're doing everything, but they need that. They need that encouragement. They need the mentorship. They need the actual resources. They need the capital. They also need to be reminded that what they're doing is desired and people are paying crazy amounts of money for what they're doing. 
So that is something that I like to talk about. Mm -hmm. Yes. And what I appreciate too is about the way that you emphasize how your mother's creativity was a way to supplement being in an under-resourced community. And this is something I'm always telling people about, like just because you grew up in a poor neighborhood is not because people are not poor because people are somehow, quote unquote, morally failing. They are poor because their neighborhoods are deliberately and structurally underdeveloped on purpose. And so you have to drive across town to go to the blankety blank. Or they might come to the school and say, hey, we're offering this to some kids and we have like 10 scholarships. And the thing that I really appreciate about hearing what I've heard from your story so far is that I think when you grow up in a community that's under-resourced, it becomes really important, at least the way that my mother did it with us, was that we were still always worthy. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It wasn't because there was something wrong with us. There's nothing wrong with us. It's just the resources that are currently not here. And so we know that these resources exist. It just takes a little more effort. You know what I mean? Black people are like, oh, well, you know, poor people are lazy. And I was like, you've never been poor. That's bullshit because that's a lot of work. Exactly. It's a lot. That's the hardest working people I know come from those areas. Exactly. I'd be like, oh, yeah, they just late. I'm like, are you kidding me? Do you know how hard it is if you got to take three kids on a bus to go someplace? Mm-hmm. Because you don't have a car, not just like in a city where they have great electricity. Multiple zones, too, and all types of weather. Mm-hmm. All types of weather. All types of weather. So basically, we can see the way that creativity works. Creativity is that thing that makes sure even if you don't have money for like the fancy, fancy, whatever, you can make it and it could be even better and just your own. I just really appreciate that. And I'm seeing such a powerful vision for your work, the place you grew up that were under-resourced so that people know that the resources are available to them and that they as human beings, as individual kids, they are a resource. Like they are valuable and important and are doing things that are just so wonderful. So congratulations on that award. And I want to use that image. I think you shared an image with us of that outfit. So I think I want to use that, make sure that people see this because it is amazing. Absolutely amazing. Oh yeah, thank you. (laughs) Let's talk a bit more about fabric alchemy. I am so excited to talk about this because... When I think about alchemy, I think about metals. I think that alchemy, as I understand it, way back in the day of 1400s or 1200s or whatever, way, way far a long time ago, people wanted to know how to turn metals into gold. There's always been this, I got to figure out how to turn something into gold. That was that very original. I got to figure out how to get this money by tomorrow. Absolutely. (laughs) So they're trying to figure this out. But it's not for you. The fabric alchemy is different. It's something else altogether. And I am just captivated by this idea. Can you say more about it? Can you define it for us so that we can dive into a chat? I love it. The same way that you have your understanding of alchemy, I had a similar one. And I kept thinking in my mind, I was like, I'm a fashion designer, but what I'm doing is also very different and I want to call it something else. So I would play around with different hashtags when I would post some of my work on Instagram and I'm like, just figuring out different things. I'm like, wearable medicine, wearable art. I'm like, (laughs) different things, old to new or whatever. And then at some point I was like, what do I want to call myself? Like, what is my practice? And I just remember thinking of the word alchemy and I'm like, well, yeah, I know they're transforming one metal into another for the purpose of a more beneficial use. And so once I did my research on that and I was like, well, I'm transforming one thing into another for a more beneficial use, but it's not necessarily metal, it's fabric. 
but I'm also working with a natural material. So why can't I call what I do alchemy? It is a transformation. And so that's how I look at it. And that's what I define as fabric alchemy, taking something ordinary, turning it into something extraordinary. It's in a way, a lot of times that it's sublime. It's sometimes hard to explain. You just have to see it. So I was like, this fits the bill. This fits what I'm doing. (laughs) And as you describe it, it absolutely fits the bill. It is absolutely, as you say, describing what you're doing. I was thinking the transformative properties of alchemy, of course, changing one thing into another, but you are changing something that was discarded, not seen as valuable or put away or put aside and making it into something that is more beneficial. Like that is exactly what you're doing. I'm like, Mm -hmm. how can she not call it alchemy? It has to be called that. And the funny thing is, one of the aspects of alchemy is something called panacea. Yes. Which is to be able to heal or like find some sort of cure-all elixir or something like that. And I was like, okay, I can take that word and not necessarily need to use it verbatim what its definition has been. But I can say that what I'm doing is a form of healing because the fabrics have a vibrational frequency that do heal your body. If you're wearing these fabrics, you're sleeping on these fabrics, it's good and beneficial to your skin and your body. So that is a form of healing that's included in what I'm doing. So I'm like, here's another reason why I can call this some sort of alchemy. That was the other thing I was so excited about was the vibrations, the vibrational properties of fabric. And I have to think that it's not unconnected to the fact that organic cotton or organic linen or whatever, why these fabrics are so expensive, as opposed to some that are cheap or some that have a high polyester count or all polyester or whatever. Can you talk about your views on vibrational properties of fabric? I think for you, was the ideal vibration, was it 100 or was it 1,000? I apologize for misidentifying that number. Can you talk about how the theory works? So your body, when it's at its optimal health, it usually vibrates at a frequency between 70 and 100. Anything below, I think, 30 is when you start to fall into illnesses and unwellness. So this is research that I found just doing my due diligence to read up on all this stuff and like really look into it. So the body at its optimal health is between 70 and 100, 100 being like max optimal health. And so knowing that that's the vibrational frequency it vibrates at, then there are environmentalists, agricultural specialists, and scientists who have done research to find out what the vibrational frequency is of certain fabric. And the funny thing is they initially started out by checking out what the vibrational frequency of linen was through using flax fabric that comes from the flax plant. And, you know, the flax plant grows in nature. Mm -hmm. So that's what linen is created from. And anybody listening to this, if you ever get a chance, really go on like YouTube or just Google how linen is turned from the flax plant into actual fabric. It's incredible to watch. Just just putting that out there. I've done that too. I've watched that too. And I'm like, I'm going to do this at some point. But anyway, getting back to that, they took a piece of linen cloth and they wrapped it around, I think, the machine. I think it was called an agenviron machine. And there's another one called an oscilloscope. And that machine is what detected the vibrational frequency of the fabrics. And so linen vibrates at one of 5,000 and wool also vibrates at 5,000. And then organic cotton vibrates at 100 and cotton vibrates between 75 and 80, I believe. Okay, now that I know this, I was like, I'm going to intently use these specific materials because I know that when you're wearing a fabric that either is a higher frequency than yours yes, or at the level of yours is going to keep your frequency frequency leveled or raise it, which is ultimately going to help to heal you and make you feel better. Wow. 
That is so powerful. That is so powerful to hear. And some is it the closer to the plant. I'm not mm-hmm. sure like what accounts for the variation in vibration, the flax to linen process, or even the sheep or wool roving to wool fiber, yarn to fabric. It's absolutely incredible. Now you were saying that they also tested polyester fabrics mm-hmm. or did they? Did they test synthetic fabrics? What did they find in it? If you know if they tested mm-hmm. synthetic fabrics. Yeah, they tested some synthetic fabrics like polyester, for example, and they found that those vibrate at like a frequency between like 15 and 20, I believe. Wow. So those fabrics are not recommended to wear over long term use or like sleep on for long periods of time just because it's not necessarily beneficial. Knowing this, I especially thought about the folks who have eczema or any type of skin conditions, things like that. I'm like, this probably is further agitating anything that's already there. You to wear linen and cotton as much as you can. I always tell people that. As much as you can, put on some linen, put on some cotton or at least sleep on it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And that this is all figured for optimal health. The pieces that you're working on then, and that's one of the reasons that you continue to use, that's one of the benefits of the recycled and upcycled materials. Do you think there's a connection when you were talking about working in Barbados and being gifted this woven fabric that you got to see being made right in front of you and collecting items from thrift or for buying repurposed clothing. Do you imagine that there's frequencies or stories or narratives or something? Because when you were speaking about the artist in Barbados, I feel like I could hear the heartness of it in your voice. Like you were saying how moving it was. And I'm like, I can imagine that fabric being so powerful and whatever you put it on is imbued with that as well. Do you see that at work in repurposing and recycling fabrics or textiles? When I'm in that process, the process is very intuitive. It's like I'm very aware of what I'm doing and it's for the purpose of healing. It's not just, I want people to look good when they wear the clothing. Don't get me wrong. That's the first thing. Aesthetic is what we see. It's what we want to look like. It's what we want to. Yes. You like what you see, then you're going to want to see more of it. That's how that works, right? But it's not just that. I'm like, I want clothing to do more than just look good because it can look good, but is it doing anything good for you? So I want it to look good, feel good, and do good. Those are like those three pillars that I'm really focused on when I'm creating. Like this is going to be what I continue to do. Because I could easily go, oh, I'm going to go pick up rolls and rolls of this polyester because it's cheaper, it's easier mm-hmm. to work with, it's this, it's that. But it's like, no, now that I know what I know, I'm not going to unknow what I know. <laughs> right. And I really appreciate how you are able to recognize this so that in some ways, repurposing fabrics isn't just because it's sustainable. The fact that it's sustainable is very valuable and it's very important, but there's also part of the sustainable aspect of it that contributes to your overall vision about clothing, fashion, and wellness. I just have one last question for you. And this is something that I ask everybody at the end of the podcast. I'll ask the slogan of the Stitch Please podcast is, we will help you get your stitch together. I like that. (laughs) We help you get your stitch together. So I'm going to ask you, Medea Mohammed, who is this fantastic designer and creative and who has done so much and who has quote unquote peers who I still haven't figured out who they might be. (laughs) What would you say to help somebody get their stitch together? I would say this, 
because this is actually a meditation and a thought that I had recently. To all the creators out there and all the doers and makers, it's really a great idea to take a little bit of this and that from successful processes that you witnessed or seen or studied, but don't get so routine or boxed into doing things all one way. Allow yourself room to expand and stretch out and grow and try new things. Don't become so regimented to the point that if you need to switch or change course, you're completely thrown off or shaken by it. Sticking to doing things one way completely because you saw it become success for someone else doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to become a success for you. Like you really have to tailor and tailor and tailor whatever your process and your journey is to you because we all have our own path to walk. Wow. And on that note, Medea Muhammad, thank you so much for being with us today. We are so grateful. Thank you. You've been listening to the Stitch Please podcast the official podcast of Black Women Stitch, the sewing group where Black Lives Matter. We appreciate you supporting us by listening to the podcast. If you'd like to reach out to us with questions, you can contact us at blackwomenstitch at gmail.com. If you'd like to support us financially, you can do that by supporting us on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and you can find Black Women Stitch there in the Patreon directory. And for as little as $2 a month, you can help support the project with things like editing, transcripts, and other things to strengthen the podcast. And finally, if financial support is not something you can do right now, you can really, really help the podcast by rating it and reviewing it anywhere you listen to podcasts that allows you to review them. So I know that not all podcast directories or services allow for reviews, but for those who do, for those that have like a star rating or just ask for a few comments, if you could share those comments and say nice things about us at the Stitch Please podcast, that is incredibly helpful. Thank you so much. Come back next week and we'll help you get your stitch together. 